0: Well, we're continuing our study through the book of Mark. And last week we saw how Peter and the guys finally recognized Jesus as the Messiah. But they didn't quite get what that meant. In their conversation, we ended with this in Mark 8:29. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter said, You are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about it. Remember, Jesus has said this numerous times: don't tell people what I'm doing, don't tell them about the miracles. And don't tell them that I'm the Messiah. Now, why would he say that? And last week, we kind of said it because they didn't really have a good understanding of what that term meant, Messiah. So right after that, and Jesus knew that, and so right after that, he picks up with a difficult conversation. And from the viewpoint of the disciples, it's kind of a hard right. Mark eight thirty one. it says, he, th- he then began to teach then that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life from me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when it comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray that your Holy Spirit quickens us to not only rightfully divide your word of truth, but to allow the word of truth to sink into our spirit and, and change who we are from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. So, think about how these guys are feeling when Jesus or when Peter says, you're the Messiah. Guys are probably high-fiving each other. Yay, hey, we got it right, he's the Messiah. And then all of a sudden, Jesus drops his bomb on them. Now, I'm thinking this is probably a mood killer for these guys. They're all excited. Hey, we got it right. He's the Messiah. We, got it, you know, we nailed it. And Jesus tells them this story. i once heard a preacher say that God gives some people the ministry of pin sticking. To stick the pin in and pop the balloon of someone's ego. Now, Jesus totally popped their egos at this point. Not because he's a mood killer, but because he needs them to understand what this revelation about the Messiah really means. Now, I'm going to reference a movie here that some of you may have seen. Princess Bride. Anybody seen that movie? Princess Bride. There's a lot of good quotes from that movie. But the one that kept coming to me from this movie is this. Quote, Inconceivable. Inconceivable. You keep using that word, I do not think you know what it means. And I think that's exactly what Jesus was saying to the disciples. You're using this term Messiah, but I don't think you understand what that term means. We said last week that their view of the Messiah was one that would conquer Rome and free Israel. Now Jesus is about to tell them, you got it wrong. This is what it really means. So we're going to pick it up with the first verse at verse 31. Verse 31. Right after this great revelation, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus says this, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. Now, I never noticed this before, but if you're reading that, notice how Jesus changes the words. He doesn't use the word Messiah anymore. He uses the term Son of Man. And Son of Man is his favorite term for himself. Nowhere else in the Gospels does anyone refer to Jesus as the Son of Man. Only Jesus refers to himself that way. And he uses that term because of the inflammatory nature of the term Messiah. When you think Messiah, these guys instantly thought revolution, overthrow Rome. It means the same thing. Son of Man means the same thing, but it takes away the context of, hey, we're going to overthrow this government, And Jesus predicted his rejection by three groups. The three groups were the elders, and these were the lay members of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was the the ruling body. These were the guys that were just lay people. That would be like you all. The chief priests include Caiaphas, who was high priest at the time, and Annas, the high priest emeritus. I guess they did that back then too, you know. If you get too old and you can't do your job anymore, they make you an emeritus. So I think that's what happened to him. And it also included members of the high priestly families. So this is like the upper echelon of that. And the last group was the teachers of the law, and these were the professional scribes. And all three of these groups made up the entire Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish high court. And he also told them that in the end, he's going to win because he's going to be raised from the dead. Now, this is also why people, Jesus didn't want people going around telling everybody about the miracles and him possibly being the Messiah because the term just sparked the idea of revolution. He didn't want them to know prematurely that following him is going to involve suffering. Now, how many have ever I heard an altar call where it's, you get saved, you come to Christ, and your life is going to be perfect from now until the time you go to be with Jesus. And you're going to be like on cloud nine for the next 50 years. Have you ever heard that? It's a lie. Because Jesus tells us salvation is free, but there's a cost to following Jesus. Who's going to want to follow someone who said at the beginning that he's going to die at the hands of his enemies. I'm thinking these guys are following Jesus because they think he's going to overrun the government. If he tells them right at the beginning, hey, the minute I'm calling you, let's let you know I'm going to die. Three years, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. And then you guys are going to have hardships too. I'm thinking a lot of them would kind of back out and say, no, no thanks. But now that they've kind of figured out who who he was, They've been following him for a while now. He needed to explain to them what following him really meant. And verse 32 says, he spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, up to this point, Jesus was kind of veiling what he meant. He didn't really go into his mission. He didn't tell them what was going to happen. He kind of, you know, kept it on the back burner. And Now, he was laying it out in the open so that they could really understand. And I like the word, It says he spoke plainly about this. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible that's, you know, like Revelation, that kind of stuff, and Daniel is kind of hard. But most of the Bible, if you read it, is plain to understand, if you want to understand what it means. Now, I thought about the veiling part of it. You ever try to give hints and clues to someone and they don't really get what you mean? And you have to kind of spell it out in plain English for them. I'm trying, I was trying to think of an example, and I'm thinking, okay, a surprise birthday party. You tell someone in your family, hey, we have to go to mom's house today. Why? Well, she asked us to come over. Okay, and it's your birthday, right? Why? I don't know. She just asked us to come over. There's no use. We can go tomorrow. No, we need to go right now. How come? What's the hurry? Why do we have to go right now? And then you got to basically say, oh, because it's a party for you. <laughs> Since you're not getting the clues, you got to go with me to the party. You have to understand they're not taking the clues in. And up to this point, Jesus had done a lot of things for them that that should have given them a clue of who he was and what his mission was. But they didn't get it yet. So now Jesus has to kind of spell it out in plain, well, in plain Greek for them right now. So Peter, full of himself, from his previous revelation, thinks it's a good idea to rebuke Jesus. Now, Anybody here think it's a good idea to rebuke Jesus? Basically the word means take him aside. Jesus, come here. We need to talk. Are you nuts? That's kind of what's going through Peter's mind. And the word he uses here rebukes is the same word that Jesus uses to silence demons. So he's pretty intense about it, Matt or Mark 125 says and Jesus rebuked him saying be quiet. Come out of him. So Peter gets kind of cocky because he had a great revelation there, and the guys all kind of let Peter do what Peter's going to do. I'm thinking they're all thinking the same thing, but you know, everybody who wants to volunteer take one step forward, and everybody goes like this, and Peter's left standing there. So Peter's the guy, you know, always shooting his mouth off, and he's the one he thinks he can correct Jesus. So he takes Jesus aside and kind of, you know, gets. Upset with him. And the reason we think that everybody else knew is because in the next verse, verse 33 says, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. So they probably you know, kind of pushed Peter forward to ask this question, but they're all thinking the same thing. And so even though Peter's the one that says it, Jesus turns and looked at all of them because they're all thinking it. And he says, say, look, this is how it needs to be. So Peter, they pushed him up, said, look, look, here is buddy. You can do the dirty work. You go ask him. So he looks at Peter, but he looks and he says it loud enough for everybody to hear. Not just Peter. In verse 33, it says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men." Now, it's kind of a pretty strong rebuke from Jesus, right? I mean, Peter's just trying to protect him, right? I don't want you to die. I, I'm going to protect you. I don't want anything to happen to you. And Jesus recognizes that temptation was the same as he experienced in the garden. If you go back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 says, Next the devil took him to a, the peak of a high mountain and showed him the nations of the world and all their glory. I will give it all to you if you'll only kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told them. For the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Je- the devil offered Jesus the, the world's way of accomplishing his mission hey look man if i I'll, you jump off here I'll give you everything I'll give you everything right now that's the world's way I'll give you instantly what you want and Jesus response was the same as he gave Peter get out of here Satan because the world's way to accomplish something is not God's way to accomplish something at this point Peter was opposing God's will Peter wanted it to be a popular, everybody loves him, let's overthrow the government type of messiahship. And that's the way the world at that time thought it should be. All the disciples did, the crowd did, they all thought, man, this is awesome. We're going to get out of Rome right now. Now, the truth is, Peter did love Jesus, right? And he really thought that there should be another way we can handle this. And I thought about that. How often do we think that God should do things maybe a different way. There's a lot of churches and preachers that may actually love Jesus or their concept of Jesus, but don't really like or believe what the Bible says. God's love, so everything that that we like, God should be okay with. How many have heard that phrase? Well, if, if I like it, it must be good. And God should really do it a different way. I think God should handle it this way. You ask people in the street, do you believe in God? Yeah. What do you think God's like? And their answer is basically, everything that they're okay with, their God is okay with. I think God should do this, and I think my God would do this, and I think my God would do that, and he would love this and hate that. That's their their version of what God is. Because they have ignored what the Bible says about God. And they think Jesus is, you know, lovey-dovey, that type of thing. I like this quote from G. Campbell Morgan. He says, "The man who loves Jesus but who shuns, who shuns God's method is a stumbling block to God. You can love Jesus, but if you ignore what His Word is telling you, you are a stumbling block to what God wants to accomplish." Now, these guys—they know their Old Testament teachings and they know their traditions. They what they've been taught about the Messiah about him ruling and reigning, or so they thought they were on solid ground. They they thought, okay, we have all these Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah ruling and reigning. This should be right. This should be a no-brainer. But Jesus had to explain to them the differences in the Old Testament prophecies. The Old Testament prophecies, some were near future, and some were distant future. And sometimes in the same sentence. I'll, I'll give you an example. If I tell you I'm going on vacation in the fall, that could mean I'm going on vacation next month. It could mean I'm going on vacation in the year 2030 in the fall. It could mean both. That one sentence as a prophecy could be right now, it could be in the future, and it could be both. I'm going September and I'm going in 2030. The Old Testament prophecies about the Messiahship were just that, a lot of them. What was going to happen instantly? when Jesus walked the earth and what was going to happen at the end when Jesus came back and that's what they're looking at they're looking at that prophecy as this should be now and Jesus says no that's in the future that's when I come back again right now I'm the suffering servant later I'm going to be the one who reigns and so he's explaining that to them the glorification prophecies are coming later The suffering prophecies, Isaiah 53, that's what's happening now. And Jesus' response was pretty severe, but he knew he had to stop their thinking about his messiahship right then. He had to kind of nip that in the bud. And I thought about that and how that applies today. Whenever we encounter false doctrine or things that lead us away from the Lord and his word has to be dealt with severely. If we see something in our life that's happening and we know it's drawing us away, we have to like stop it right away. And I thought about when my kids were little, there was a, a correction voice that we used inside, then there was a correction voice that no one doubted when we were outside. If they're running towards the street to traffic, my yelling at them is gonna be a lot different than it is in the house. It's not gonna be like, hey guys, yeah, you might want to stop before you hit no. It'd be stop to get him to stop. And Jesus knew he had to deal with it right there, right then, in a manner that was no doubt. And a lot of times when we see false doctrine and things drawing us away from the Lord, we have to come at the same approach. Understand what it is and stop it instantly. Don't let it linger on, don't let it. If you have a cancer tumor, what do they do? Do they let it go or do they cut it out? If they can, they cut it out all of it, instantly, as fast as they can. Because if they don't, it's going to get worse. And Jesus knew that if they kept this idea of the Messiahship going, it would be worse for them. And if we don't correct things in our life that are against what God wants instantly, it's going to get worse. We talked about searing your conscience in, uh, in our class today. Doing things the first time, you're, you're really nervous and you know you shouldn't do them. And you do it, and you get away with it. Then the second time you do it, oh, maybe not so bad. And you get away with it again. Then you do it a third time, and you get away with it again. And all of a sudden, you're not bothered by it at all. That's searing your conscience. You get away with one sin without any negative consequences. Well, maybe I can sin again. And get away with it with no consequences. And all of a sudden, you no longer have the conviction of the Holy Spirit saying, hey, stop doing that. And God says, if we don't stop it now, it's going to get worse. And so we had to stop that with them. Verse 24 says, Then he cried the, uh, called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Now he's talking to his 12, but all the other people were there hearing it, and they all needed to hear the same thing. So he called them all together, and they were listening to Jesus. And he needed to get them together to hear these next words. Now, you're already here, so you need to hear them too, basically. You guys are here. You're listening to me correct the disciples. Come on around, because you all need to hear this. Now, remember, his audience was Roman Christians, and they were facing persecution because of being Roman Christians, and they needed to hear some encouragement. They needed to hear that what they were experiencing was not out of the ordinary. Actually, the persecution they were experiencing was part of the deal, part of being a disciple. One commentary says it this way, Jesus had called his own disciples to the realization that suffering was not only his destiny, but theirs. So if you want to follow Christ, it might be difficult for you. Verse 34 says, If anyone would come after me, He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, remember, Jesus is addressing everybody, not just the 12, he's addressing all the crowd. That means what he is saying applies to everybody, not just his apostles. And most of the people that were following him did so because of the miracles. And he was saying, look, there's more to this than just the miracle. If you want to follow me, it's going to be difficult. It may be very hard for you to do that. Do you understand the price that it's going to cost to follow me? And it's not just the miracle. And he's asking them, are you willing to pay this price? Now, the, the price or the requirements were twofold. The first one is deny yourself. Now, this doesn't mean, like, deny yourself something, like I'm going to quit drinking coffee. Now, that would be horrible, but it's not, it's not that. It means you're no longer the center of your life life does not revolve around you it revolves around God God is the center of everything you do now you're going to realize that in about three days your life no longer revolves around you your entire life now will revolve around that baby you will get no sleep you will have no spending money everything around your life will revolve around the baby. Everything. You just can't jump in your car and go to the store anymore. By yourself. You can't go to the bathroom by yourself. Your schedule, your sleeping time, your free time, your time to play video games or hang out with your friends ends in two days. Or three days, whatever. That's how it is with the Lord. Everything, our schedule, our free time, our sleeping time, all comes in secondary to what God wants us to do. Because God now dictates your life. It doesn't mean you're a slave or a robot. It just means your attitude now should be, I want to do everything in my life to please the Lord. No matter what it is. Cross bearing is the second one. Now the cross, everybody knew in Roman what the cross was. They knew it it meant death. There was no... They knew that the cross wasn't a simple irritation or a bump in the road. They knew that it meant death. And to bear the cross means that there is going to be suffering and death as part of the deal. And Jesus tells us that many times. John 16, 13. I have told you these things so that in, in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. John fifteen eighteen. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. John fifteen twenty. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. John sixteen two. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. Mark eight thirty five. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. So if you were told that following Christ is going to be a piece of cake and maybe your life has been blessed up to this point. I mean, mine has. I can't, I can't complain. But if things happen to us, we should not, not expect it. If persecution comes, are you ready for it? Now, I like to think that I am. And I think you only know that at that moment. I read a, an article or an account of someone who was actually being burned to the stake for his faith. And he, wanted, he was really nervous about how he was going to endure that without recanting. And so he tried to burn himself with a candle or something to see if he would feel the pain. And he did. He felt the pain instantly. He said, but then another eyewitness saw him as he was on fire, worshiping the Lord, because it was at that moment that God gave him the peace and God gave him the ability, not before. And if we think we're going to handle persecution, we don't really know until it actually comes our way. And it's at that moment that God gives you the grace to go through it. It doesn't mean it's not going to hurt or it's not going to be hard, but God gives you the ability to go through it. And we can't deny Jesus to avoid persecution another way of saying that but it also notices what we might lose for what we might lose our life for Jesus and the gospel not for being crazy not for taking unnecessary risks but for being bold and sharing the gospel we were in our class we were talking about this I forget the name of the bridge it's a River Gorge Bridge in West Virginia if you know it. it's on 79 It's like one of the highest bridges. We used to go down that way to Florida. And once or or twice a year, they close the bridge and they bungee jump off this bridge. I'm thinking, no thanks. But if you are jumping off the bridge and you think you're honoring God and you die, that's not one of the reasons Jesus gives. If you suffer persecution, it's because you don't recant Jesus and you're boldly proclaiming the gospel. Fox's Book of Martyrs tells us how many preachers and Christians died and how they died that would not recant their faith. William Tyndale, the guy who started the translations of the Bible, he was another one burned at the stake because he wanted to give the Bible to the masses. Burned at the stake for that. Mark goes on says in verse 36, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Comparing this world and everything in it as compared to eternity. Let's say you live to be 100 years old and you get as wealthy as Jeff Bezos. If you don't have a guarantee of eternity in heaven, how much of that wealth and time would you trade to get to heaven? Then it'd be too late. I bet you'd say all of it. Take it all. I want to be in heaven. But at that point, you're not going to be able to because heaven isn't for sale. The point is, this life and its wealth is so short, Jesus said that no trade is ever worth it. This life compared to eternity. Nothing here is compared to eternity is worth it. 100 years of wealth compared to a gazillion years of paradise. James four fourteen says, "What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while, and then vanishes." And the older you get, the more you understand that, right? Now, seniors, it's going fast, and it's poof. I read an article the other day, and I put this in my notes before I read the article. You all know who Steve Jobs is, right? Basically, he invented Apple, invented the iPhone, basically, and was a gazillionaire, right? Well, he's been gone for years. How much of that money would you think he would give to come back or not be in hell, if that's where he is? I read an article the other day that said his wife, she is worth $20 billion. $20 billion. You can't even fathom that kind of money. But at the end of her life, all that money is staying. Jesus says, do you think, and now is it worth it? Because it's not. Mark 8, 38 says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. This world is adulterous and sinful and most people don't follow Christ. Broad is the road that leads to destruction, the Bible says. And there are ones who are more concerned about people than about what God says or thinks. They are ashamed of what the Bible says about sin and salvation because they're afraid of what people may think of them for that. They're ashamed of the gospel that says we're all sinners and we can't save ourselves, that we're not good enough. They followed the crowd instead of following Jesus. And basically what he's saying is when Jesus returns, regardless of how good a life you've lived, no matter how much you did, how good you were, you loved your neighbor, if you were ashamed of Jesus, you never came to Christ, then Jesus says, I'm going to reject you at that point. Now let me end with these sobering verses. Second Thessalonians 1.5 But God will use this persecution to show his justice, for he will make you worthy of his kingdom for which you are suffering. And in his justice, he will punish those who persecute you. And God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted and also for us when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven. He will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who do not know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. When he comes to receive glory and praise from his holy people, and you will be among those praising him on that day for you believed what we testified about him enduring hardship now living for Jesus now is going to be repaid at some point either when Jesus returns or when we go to be with him we are going to be paid back for whatever suffering we have now if we stick with Jesus and you can't wait to make that choice You need to be ready now. We heard the Lord this morning. Don't wait. No one's guaranteed tomorrow. Those fires in Hawaii, how many people thought they were going to die in those fires last week? How many people had car accidents this week and died in car accidents that were... No idea. You need to be ready today. I'm going to ask you to stand as we close this morning. If you would bow your heads for a moment, close your eyes. Now, we did this earlier, but we're going to do it again. When Jesus says, and the Bible says that God is long-suffering, not wanting any to perish, that means he's willing to give ample time for people to come to realize that they need Jesus. He is long-suffering that it has to deal with people. Patience has to deal with circumstances. He is long-suffering with you. He knows at some point there's going to be a breaking point where you come to faith or he knows there's never going to be that point. But he's doing all he can to continue to draw you. There is no predestination. There is no Election other than God chooses us. Everyone is available to be saved. Everyone. God wants everyone to be saved. But the Bible tells us most won't. I want everyone here to be a part of the ones who do. you're here you've never given your life to Christ and you realize that if you died today you take your last breath as you walk out these doors you know you're not right with God you may be doing all the right things but you're not right with God the Bible says the right things don't get you in the right person gets you in if you've never committed your life to Christ. You've never accepted God's free gift of salvation. You've never confessed that you're a sinner, that you can't make it on your own no matter how good you think you are or how bad you think you are. That you can't make it in without Jesus. And the Bible says today's the day you need to make that right. You need to be guaranteed 100% sure that if you die five minutes from now you're going to be in heaven. Because if you don't live past that five minutes, you're not going to be in heaven. You're going to be in a place of eternal torment. That never ends. If that's you and you want to make it right with God, I want you to raise your hand. All right, I am going to ask you, if you raised your hand, I want you to come down front. We're going to pray for you. This is the most important decision of your life. Anyone else? All right, I'm going to ask my wife to come up. I'm going to lead these folks to Jesus. I know Jalen wants to grow closer. Is this the first time for you? Recommitment. Recommit. All right. Yep. Father, I thank you for these two lives that you've spoken to today, that their desire to grow closer to you is because you've drawn them. It's nothing that we have done. Your Holy Spirit has done the work in her life and Jalen's life to bless them and to draw them in. You want that closer relationship more than they do. And I thank you that they have responded to that draw of the Spirit. And I pray that from beginning this day forward that, God, your anointing would be upon them that they would really experience the power of God every day and their love for you would grow and the relationship that you have with them would grow. And they'd become more and more like you and they would seek you more and more and allow them to understand how much you love them and care for them. I thank you for their dr- desire to want to become like you. And I thank you, Father, for drawing them by your spirit. Now, Lord, I pray your hand upon them as they take this next step in their life, this recommitment to follow you, to do all that they can to serve you to the best of their ability. And we pray that your Holy Spirit fills them and gives them that ability. And we thank you for the rest of us here who have already committed our lives to Christ, that you would continue to help us in the days and weeks and months to come, should you tarry, and allow our life to be a reflection of the gratitude and the mercy and the love that we've received and that other people see it in us. And we will gladly give you all the honor and glory and praise And it's in the name of Jesus we do all these things. And God's people said, "Amen." amen. Amen. Bless you. Congratulations.